Today we're going to be talking about that nearby other or loving our neighbors. So please turn in your New Testaments to Luke 10 verses 25 through 37. Luke 10 verses 25 through 37. And as you're turning, let's pray. Lord, would you open our hearts to love? Your love? To love you? And would you help us see and love our neighbors? In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you people who believe in the sovereignty of God, and we Presbyterians are supposed to believe in the sovereignty of God, how many of you actually think, as I do, that there are times in our lives when God puts a person into your life for what seems to be the sole purpose of for you to be able to see whether you're still paying attention or not. Whether you're still online with a relationship with God, whether your heart is still soft toward God, whether you're still willing to respond in the name of Jesus with His love and His grace. And sometimes those are difficult people. And God just puts them right there in our field of vision. Sometimes they are people with some kind of a weakness Sometimes they're a person with a disability. Sometimes they're people that are in trauma or in distress. Sometimes they're people that have chronic illnesses and and they're sick. Sometimes it's people that are dying and they're there. And, And how are we going to respond? And sometimes they're none of that. Sometimes they're just new to the neighborhood and they don't have any friends. Or they're new to the school and they feel horribly insecure and and they don't yet have people that they can hang out with. But the question that we have to answer when, when God puts someone like that into our lives is, are we paying attention? And if we are, are we willing? Are we even thinking about, thinking about engaging those people? are far from considering any kind of engagement with that human being? Or are we actually ready to engage? And we kind of see that as an opportunity. Why would we do that? Let's read our text, and I only want to read a portion of it now. It it, it contains a parable, and I want to save the parable and tell and read the parable in a few minutes. But it's Luke 10... 25, and this is the very word of God. And behold, see, behold, a lawyer stood up in front of him, Jesus, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read the law? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, (laughs) there's always one of those somewhere. (laughs) But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, 
said to Jesus, And who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a parable to answer that question. And I will read that parable in a few moments. But what I'd like to do is look at this passage in the sense of loving the nearby other or our neighbor from three vantage points. Really comes three words that come out of the text, just right out of the text. The words are what, who, and you. It's two questions, what and who, and then Jesus applying the text to this man in the you. So the first is what. It all starts with the question, what? Um, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now you need to understand, this is a lawyer who is asking this question. Now before you start thinking of shows about lawyers and lawyer jokes start uh, rising up somewhere in the back of your mind, it's not that kind of a lawyer. This is a theological lawyer, you might say. This is one of the the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law. This is an expert in the Word of God. The law generally meaning the Word of God. This is a precisionist who really spends a lot of time with the text. He's the guy everybody else usually asks the questions of. He's the answer man. So the answer man stands up to test Jesus to see if Jesus is up to the answer man's level of knowledge. And the man asked this question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life in such a way that that you kind of feel that he believes he can gain eternal life by by works. What must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus answers him the way Jesus answers a lot of questions that are put to him. I don't know if you ever noticed this. Jesus has a way of answering a question with a question. And furthermore, Jesus answers him also in a way that we see all over the Gospels by pointing him to the Scriptures. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say, Mr. Lawyer? How do you read it? Now, I love that. What it's saying is, you know, what does the Word of God say? Do you know what the the actual text says? And how do you read it? How do you interpret it? You know, just a little aside here. It's worth a lot, I think is that, have you ever noticed that Jesus says, have you not read, or it is written, or have you not seen, or Abraham said this, or, you know, Elijah is still to come, have you not seen? Jesus is constantly sending people to the Scriptures. You know why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He is the Word incarnate. But here's what we need to take away, just a little aside, is, hey, if the Scriptures really are how Jesus answers questions, I think that if the Scriptures are good enough for Jesus, they're actually good enough for us. And actually, the answers to our questions are in the Scriptures. And He, of course, is speaking to us in the Scriptures. What's the text say? He answers. How do you read it? How do you interpret it? Verse 27, And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus answered that a similar question the exact same way. And Jesus says, You answered the question right. This is great. That's exactly right, Jesus says. Verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this 
and you will live. So that's what. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The second question is where we get into the problems. If we just left it there, we would feel great about this lawyer. But he didn't leave it there. Second question is who? Jesus is saying, you know, you got it right. This really is about loving God. This really is about a relationship with God. And, you know, a relationship with God in the Old Testament never came by law, never came by works. People that think people uh, that the Old Testament saints were saved by the law are thoroughly unbiblical. It's all about the covenant. It's all about God's provision for sin. I mean, isn't that what all the sacrifices were about? The sacrifices were to cover over and to give to our account that which we didn't do for ourselves. That's what all the lambs and bulls and goats, you know, were sacrificed. In the Old Testament, we see that it is always about substitution. But Jesus is saying this. He's saying, you know, you got it right. This really is about knowing and loving God through believing in Him. And when you know and love God, one of the ways you, you can see that in the real world is you love other people. People that don't love other people deserve the question, do you love God? James says that. John says that in 1 John. So Jesus says, you know, you got that right. And just when we're feeling good about this lawyer, he asks the second question. Who then is my neighbor? He says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Jesus said, that's right. Who is my neighbor? Now you need to understand, this guy's not asking the question so Jesus can elaborate on how generous the lawyer can be. So he can just expand and say, well, you know, your neighbor is everybody who has need. Your neighbor is everybody that's in, in contact with you. And it's not like the lawyer wants to hear this everybody and hear this generosity that's demanded in a relationship with God. No, no. He actually wants to restrict it. He is a precisionist. He is a, a legalist. And he's basically saying, who is not my neighbor? I, I'd like to know the, the least I can get away with, really. Who do I not have to love? And, and, and how can I bring it down to the things I really need to do that if I can check those boxes, I will be okay with God? It's really an attempt to limit who his neighbor might be. Verse 19, and we see that in the text, but he desiring to justify himself. That means to make sure he's right with God. Said to Jesus, who is my neighbor. Now, I'm sure that we could never um, identify with the attitude of, hey, God, what is as little as I can do and still be acceptable? Uh, what, what, is, what is as little as I can do? What's the least amount of time I can give to you? What's the least amount of money I can give to you? What's the least amount of times I can show up or whatever the question is and still be okay? I'm sure none of us with our human natures would ever ask a reductionary question like that. Of course we do. This is not an unimportant text to people who even understand the grace of God. Who then is my neighbor? Is that second question. And Jesus answers by telling a parable. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, 
Jesus says it is a relationship with God by faith. Loving God with all your heart means you love your neighbor as yourself. I think there's value in this parable for us to know who our neighbor is. Maybe we can kind of recalibrate on what that second part of the great commandment looks like by hearing Jesus in a fresh way. Talk about what this love looks like and who it is intended for. So, let's look at the parable. The parable begins at verse 30. There was a certain man on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, i got to tell you that it's 17 miles, and it's a, a steep descent. Uh, Jerusalem is in what's called the Judean Hills. It's up high. And it's over 1,300 feet that you descend over the 17 miles till you get to the Jordan River where Jericho is right there on the Jordan River. And it's just north of the Dead Sea, which incidentally is the lowest place on the planet. It's below sea level. So we know that this, it says he's going down from Jericho. That's what it means. But that's not the most important geographical feature for the story. Could, could I say that sometimes we Presbyterians, we talk more about the story than just telling the story? And I really want us to understand what Jesus is, is doing in his storytelling here to make a point, this parable. Now, the geographical feature isn't just the descent. It's the, the fact of how remote, uninhabitable almost, arid, rocky, uh, it's got canyons, you know, even to this day, the highway that leads up to Jerusalem from Jericho is just switchback, switchback, switchback. Even more crooked was the, the footpath. And the, here's the bad part. Anybody listening to Jesus tell this story would have known this. That, all those canyons, that's where the robbers hide out and jump out of, out, you know, just jump out on people and rob them. It was well known that one of the most dangerous things you could do in Israel was to walk alone from Jerusalem to Jericho. So there's kind of a suspense building already because everybody knows what's going to happen. So we read the text and it happens. Verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. Stop. This is so violent. Now I know we read this and he, he fell among robbers like robbers are nice people or something. He fell among robbers and they beat him and stripped him and left him half dead. That is, look, this is like totally rated R, blood splattered violence. I mean, this is like going down to the inner city and literally being mugged, stripped and beaten and left for dead on the sidewalk. Except for this is worse because this is uninhabited and you're just going to lie there in the sun for a long time. So... Feel the violence. Fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. I mean, poor man, we're saying. So, a good story has conflict, and there it is. A good story needs resolution. Well, this isn't going to take time to, to long time to resolve because there he is lying half dead, and here comes somebody. Here comes somebody, and it's a friendly you know who it is? It's a preacher. And you know, preachers will always stop and, and help you right wrong. One of his own. Uh, a leader. 
And I love the note of hope. Now, by chance, a priest came by like, you know, there's like this unresolved conflict. And now it just happened while he was lying there half dead that a priest came by. And what happens? Our hopes for this man hearing this story are just dashed because the priest walks right by him. In fact, the text says it doesn't just walk by and doesn't like step over him or something like that. Walks as far as he can around him to the other side of the road as not to come anywhere near him. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Our hopes are dashed. But wait, here comes someone else. And he too is a friendly This is great. What incredible providence. This is a Levite. Now, you know, Levites, they served with the priest. The priest did a lot of the holy services. The Levites put everything together for the sacrifices and the animals for sacrifice. This is a very man, very dedicated to God. Now he's going to be saved, right? Nope. Our hopes are dashed again. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him, pass by on the other side. So, he's going to die, right? And y'all already know, no, he's not going to die. But if you've never heard this before, you're wondering, maybe he's going to die. Wait, there is a third person coming. Oh, no. He is going to die. Because this is not a priest. This is not a Levite. If you could search all through Israel to find the one type of person that would love to walk around a bleeding Jew on the road to Jericho, you would go directly to a Samaritan. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews and they hated the Jews. Just in brief, when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom of Israel, they deported them out of there. They all scattered, hence the, quote, lost tribes of Israel. You ever heard of that? When the Babylonians took the southern kingdom, they kept them together, right? They went to Babylon, they came back. Well, guess what? The Assyrians dispersed them all and they sent foreigners into that area in the north and intermarried with the Jews that were left over and they were considered half-breeds and traitors. When the, the people came back from Babylon, all thoroughly Jewish, those folks wanted to help them build the temple. They were refused. There was all this animosity. Like nothing we've ever seen in this culture, there is years in history and history of hatred and animosity. Oh no, one of those is the only person in that canyon walking up to this man. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him... He, the Samaritan, had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which were medicinal. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. If you're a Jew, Jewish lawyer, hearing this story, you're going, what? Why'd you make that up that way? 
<laughs> Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar, says in as in more words than Jesus used to describe the activity of the two Jewish leaders, Jesus details all the Samaritan does to have to help the man. This is amazing. He goes into great detail about the love and the care of the Samaritan. He says there are six actions taken willfully on the part of the Samaritan to help this man. He comes up to the man. He loads him on his mule. He takes him to the inn to care for him. And uh, he binds up his wound. He anoints him with oil. And he pays for the whole stay. Daryl Bott goes on to say that, in fact, the amount of money, it tells him the amount of money, you know, that he gives the innkeeper. If you're to look at what they think the average night stay, you know, at an inn at that time would be and divide that by the amount of money given to the innkeeper, do you know how many nights he paid for for this man to recuperate? Over three weeks. And in the text he says to the innkeeper, he says, hey, when I get back, if this isn't enough money, just let me know and I'll pay. Do you know anybody that will pay for a hotel room for anybody else for three weeks? I mean, who's not hurt? This is an outrageous compassion. So, the answer to the question, who then is my neighbor, is basically to say, you're asking the wrong question. You don't need to know who can I not love. Now, the answer is, rather than worrying about who who is and who isn't, be a neighbor to anybody that has need. Not try to figure out who deserves it. Go and be a neighbor. And that includes people that you don't like. That includes people that are not like you. That includes people that have emotional issues with you, like Jesus of the command, love your enemy. This is the living out in the flesh of love your enemy. So, be a neighbor, Samaritan to a Jew. What this is saying is, there is no limit on who your neighbor is. Anybody you come in contact, everybody in your world is your neighbor. So Jesus is saying, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul leads to loving your neighbor. And it's beautiful. You know, when you look at history, one of the things you can say about the church over the millennia is that the Christian church, for all of its foibles and all of its mistakes that are so readily pointed out today, has been the most noteworthy and consistent instrument of compassion on this planet. And I read to you from Christian History Magazine where the article says ancient societies, like the one this happened in, ancient societies were not known for their care of the sick and dying. Christians who often risked their lives to care for even non-Christians represented the radical difference in values taught by the Bible rather than everything else that was known at that time. He goes on to say, in Rome and Greece, the dominant culture, and Greek culture became Roman culture, that Greek Greco-Roman culture was Jesus' culture that he lived in. The cultures of Rome and Greece, the culture, the religions, did not teach its followers to care for the helpless. 
Listen to this. Destitute families lacking any resources routinely even abandoned their chronically ill relatives to die. And this was socially acceptable. And it's not my family. You know, you can't handle your own problems. That's your problem. Unwanted children were often left to die of exposure. If a father decided a family could not afford to feed another child, the child would be abandoned on the steps of a temple or just in the public square. Almost without exception, it sounds like China today, almost without exception, defective newborns were exposed in this way. It is against this backdrop that Christianity has was a distinct contrast. It was well known that Christians would regularly pick up those abandoned babies and raise them as their own. And this made a huge impact in the society at large. If you begin to go read the non-Christian sources, Roman sources about what people are saying about the early church, one of the things that keeps being told is about this massive adoption of children that are put on the ash heap out of sheer compassion. Rodney Stark, Stark, the author of The Rise of Christianity, argues that some of the most, some of the most marked growth of the church in the early centuries can be attributed, this is so interesting, to the compassion Christians showed the sick during three different plagues. Okay, so there's an uptick in people that want to be a Christian and are, and are baptized into the church during three different pr- plagues. They are the uh, the plagues of Ant- the Antonine plague of the second century, the Cyprian plague of the third century, the Justinian plague of the sixth century. That's just for your uh, learning pleasure. But this is what he says: Christians demonstrated their love for God and biblical values, and they offered a very attractive witness. He ends by saying, "Their example has been followed through the history of the Christian Church." That is called living the parable. It's what we do. Right? You see, that we got to answer that question today, don't we? I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. It's definitely been the, the case over the centuries. It's a very important passage that we're looking at. So what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Well said. Who? Who then is my neighbor? Wrong question. Be a neighbor to anybody and everybody who has need. But the third word is you. And that word is found in verse 37. I want to begin with verse 36. Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved, meaning the the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, and he cannot bring himself to use the word Samaritan. He cannot do it. He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you. You go and do likewise. Now, 
knowing that I was preaching on the Good Samaritan, it occurred to me as I was pulling into the Walmart parking lot on Thursday, and I saw a lady's hood up, and she was trying to mess with her engine, and, you know, I assumed that she needed help. I thought, I'm preaching on the Good Samaritan. I'm going to go be one. I'll get to tell my congregation what a wonderful person I am. (laughs) So... I pulled up next to that lady in the parking lot. My electric window went down. And I said, ma'am, is everything okay? Do you need any help? And y'all, she looked at me angrily and said, it's just fine. And I just rolled that window back up <laughs> and moved on in the parking lot. I, don't, I can't read minds, but I think what she was thinking <laughs> was... Just because I'm a woman, do you not think I can fix my own car, dude? Now, I don't know what she was thinking, but I uh, definitely went around to the other side of the road and passed that one up. So much for entering the story at Walmart. You go and do likewise. You know, it's, it's interesting as we look at this parable from different directions. You know, we, we look at it from the direction of, is it, is it the priest? Is it the Levite? No, it's the Samaritan. And that's like the shock value. That's pretty amazing. And the teaching value of that. But there's another way to look at this parable that's very important. And, and, and it kind of answers the question, is this parable more about the Samaritan that helps the man or more about the man lying half dead on the road, and who helps him? Well, the answer is both, of course. We kind of looked at the Samaritan angle. Um, By making the good guy the Samaritan in the parable, Jesus is forcing the Jewish lawyer to put himself into the parable as the guy on the road because he's not going to be the, a Samaritan. And, and this is fascinating um, because now all of a sudden this Jewish lawyer isn't just looking at who might help this man, but, but he, Jesus kind of places him in the story as the Jew that is dying on the side of the road. And let me tell you, not that I've ever been half naked, half beat to death and dying on a Judean road in the sun with buzzards circling around. Um, But I think I could say on good authority that when you're exposed and dying on the road, thirsty and literally watching your life pass before your eyes in the Judean sun, um, you really stop asking, I think, at that point, those precisionist, legalistic questions about who it is proper to help and who it is not proper to help anymore. Because when you're in that situation on the road, you know what your answer to the question is? Who is my neighbor? Is anyone, please. You get that? Well, guess what? That's the other reason Jesus flipped the way he told this parable because that is the answer. The first answer is, you know, if a Samaritan who hates a Jew and that would never happen happens, then that the the most obvious non-happening thing, that means everybody ought to do it. This is when you're lying on the road dead, you no longer care about who my neighbor is and your neighbor is everyone who has need. 
You know, the first time I really got this was in 1997. I read a book and I moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, and in, in 1998. And the first thing I did with the diaconate at Village 7 Presbyterian Church is I made them read uh, a book called Ministries of Mercy, The Call of the Jericho Road. Uh, by Tim Keller that had just been written in 1997 and they read it and half my diaconate quit within three weeks. That's the true story. But one of the main points in this book is that Jesus does want us to take the perspective of the person lying on the side of the road as you. If that's you who's poor, if that's you that doesn't have shelter, if that's you who can't afford medical, if that's you, then mercy ministry suddenly looks a little different, doesn't it? And I think that's the point. Or as Jesus put it differently in another place, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know what that's called, right? The golden rule. This parable is loving your enemies. It's a lot of things. It is the golden rule. But I think finally, and so, and so as, we, as we come to this parable and say, okay, we know it's about a relationship and we know this relationship kind of loves our neighbor. Okay, the question's been asked, so who is our neighbor? And then we kind of realize that everybody that God puts in our school field of vision that has needs becomes our neighbor and are we willing to actually think remember before we started am i even willing to think about think about helping engaging these people the last thing i want to talk about is spiritually you, you we need to understand that is you on the road spiritually that is each one of us and it's not pretty I mean, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but may I just say, there you are mortally wounded and religion can't help you. And nobody can help you. And no one really wants to help you out of any kind of pure motive. And I'm going to tell you something. Jesus did not walk by. No. Jesus left the throne of God, became one of us precisely to help us, to save us. You see, Jesus didn't walk by. Remember what? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't that beautiful? It's like, I'm that person dead on the side. I'm that person hemorrhaging. And Jesus didn't walk by me. No, he found me. He found me. And he had compassion on me. And it is precisely by his wounds that mine are healed. So, if you get that, and there's love for God because of that, and love for God literally means love for other people. What's that look like? Folks, there are people bleeding all around us. They are hemorrhaging over their marriages. They are hemorrhaging 
bleeding over their children. Some of them are hemorrhaging over their children's marriages. Some of them are bleeding out because of failure in their lives and disappointment. Some of them are slowly bleeding to death because of loneliness. And there are others, particularly our children our, and our, our young people in school, who, who are being cruelly marginalized by other students. And they're just bleeding. And there are people that are just gushing, hemorrhaging because of poverty and the depression and the fear that comes with poverty. And these people live next door sometimes. These people live down the street sometimes. These people work three cubicles down sometimes. These people are at the desk sometimes. They're in the inner city. But here's the question that Jesus is asking this morning. Will you and I see them? And why would we see them? You, me, you, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, we we know it's about our hearts. And forgive us for how small our hearts really are sometimes. Forgive us for often wanting to kind of know we never put this way to you, but how little we can be about and give and love and still be acceptable. Lord, forgive us for how we reduce the number of people we would even think about thinking about helping and engaging. Thank you that you sought us and you found us and you healed us through your wounds. Lord, would you show the world, even through sinful but grateful, grace-captured people, what it looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.